RX. Today on Studio 360. If it can be live, it must be. Why Mark Morris wishes that pretty much all dance performances had live musicians. Well, I don't want to watch dead dancers either, and I don't want a dead audience. Although I've been in situations sometimes where the orchestra is so terrible, I wish they'd just put on a record. <laughs> the famous choreographer Mark Morris on dance, music, and his new memoir. Plus, finding resonance in unexpected places. This episode started playing, and then I stopped what I was doing, and I couldn't like look away and I couldn't do anything else. How the writer Carmen Maria Machado found surprisingly personal meaning in Star Trek. And I kept thinking, like, this feels so on the nose. Like, as I'm working on this memoir, this episode just happens to, like, be in the queue. That and more is ahead on Studio 360, right after this. Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. Hello. Oh, hi. It's a lot of you. <laughs> hi, Mark Morris. Kurt. Hello. Hi. What are you getting, room tone already? Mm -hmm. Oh, great. I recently went with a couple of my Studio 360 producers to visit Mark Morris, one of the most famous living choreographers. His apartment turned out to be small, which surprised me. And when we got there, he was whistling and blasting classical music, which didn't surprise me. Mark Morris has always made music and the study of music central to the dances he creates. Which, he explained to me, candid and impolitic as ever, is not the case with a lot of choreographers. There's a very common ignorance on the topic of music from a lot of choreographers, certainly a lot of dancers, but also a lot of choreographers, and sadly, a lot of artistic directors of, of companies. Even using something like the unbelievable Tchaikovsky scores, Swan Lake, Sleeping Beauty, and The Nutcracker, without a comprehension of how the tempos relate to each other and the key signature and continuity, how a rhythm of a whole piece of music that's intended for a ballet like those were, how they relate uh -huh. and why things are important to have the repeat or not or to do this as fast or as slow as the composer intended. If you choose music, it's your responsibility to know something about it. And of course, you can do whatever the hell you want. It's just that my particular strictness is with a very deep respect for the musical sources that I work with. In his new memoir, Out Loud, his respect for the music he uses for his dances is clear. The book goes from his childhood dance classes in Seattle in the 60s to his formation of the Mark Morris Dance Group in 1980, which is still going strong, to his adventures all over the world. It's about dance, of course, but it's just as much about music. Creating a Mark Morris dance begins with him listening to music on repeat, often through the sound system in his apartment. And there we were in his apartment, so I decided to focus our conversation on the relationship between his dances and music. Like why he says he makes dance to trick audiences into hearing music better. I'm revealing the structure of the music, the content of the music, the design of the music, the 
composer's manipulations of melodic material, thematic material. That's what I do in a parallel way right. because of how my work is derived from music directly, which isn't the same as the music tells you right, left, right. You know, I decide that. But I think that if you're going to choreograph with music, which I always do, you should know what the hell you're talking about. Do you have a sense in general, like what makes a piece of music good for you to make a dance around? I try to surprise myself. I sometimes am uh, attracted to music that is impossible to imagine choreographing because I want I want the challenge of that. And, you know, a lot of music that's purpose built for dancing is very often sort of, you know, lodgy, sort of nursery rhyme-ish. And you said that you, you, you'll only work with live music. You don't want recordings. If that's all there is and it's a particular reason that I want to do, absolutely. But if it can be live, it must be. Because? Well, I don't want to watch dead dancers either. I don't want a dead audience. I don't want synthetic anything. Yeah, yeah. So what I want most fondly is the audience is alive and alert. And so are the players and so are the dancers. You know, and I'm not forbidding anybody from doing anything. But if I'm going to go see a show and I know it's recorded music, something everybody knows, I'm less likely to do that. Although I've been in situations sometimes where the orchestra is so terrible, I wish they'd just put on a record. It would be a relief for me. <laughs> so you pick out a piece of music. Okay, I'm, I want to make a dance around this. What, mm -hmm. what, what happens next? I listen, think, read, read, research, read the score, read the score without listening, listen without reading. Yeah. I do that and I build the material, the moves and the ideas and the geometry from just starting. I just start, even if it's going to turn out to be a solo or I think it's going to be I start working with everybody, everybody in my company, which is around 18 to 20 people, so that everyone knows the basic sort of movement vocabulary. And then I can make quite complex compositions for the dance that look impossible, but are very much based in the material that's provided by me and via the music. So we asked you to create a playlist of music that you love and has been important to you in one way or another. Um, First piece we're going to talk about is by the 20th century American composer who is hard to pigeonhole or describe because he was like no one else, named Harry Parch. Yeah. Uh, so first of all, tell the people who Harry Parch was. Harry Parch was a... Most of the terms used to describe him are insulting. He was queer. He was a drunk. He was a hobo. He rode the rails. He was that awful American term, a maverick. Mm -hmm. I would say that Harry Parch was an original genius. That's what I would say. This piece on your list is Barstow, eight hitchhiker inscriptions from a highway railing at Barstow, California. Number one. It's January 26th. I'm freezing. Ed Fitzgerald, age 19. Harry Parch found these inscriptions when he was hitchhiking, written on a railing. Graffiti. Uh, basically. Yeah, basically graffiti and probably some dirty pictures. And he took, I think, I don't know, eight or so of those and set them to music with what he called his intoned voice. Going home to Boston, Massachusetts. It's 4 p.m. 
and I'm hungry and broke. I wish I was dead. And by the way, Barstow, California is way out in the middle of nowhere in the desert. Yeah, right, exactly. So it's about being alone, waiting for a car, waiting for a trip home. That's the text of it. Oh, I'm going home to Boston, Massachusetts. Actually, it is the very first dance I made up that's good. And I was 16 or 17 when I made up a dance to this music. This this kid who had already, you were already figured you wanted to do dance? We're doing dance? I was dancing, yeah. I started dancing when I was uh-huh. about eight, I think, eight or nine in Seattle, yes. How and when did you first encounter Harry Parch? I was probably 15 or 16, and I got a bonus record of super avant-garde music of the time, including Harry Parch. So that was a real sort of emergency that happened to me musically. It was like, wow, I love this. You'd never encounter. You never I, heard music. No, like this? I never had. No. And so, what struck you about Harry Parch? Harry Parch, fifteen. It was kind of dirty and funny, but the the real thing about his music is that he decided to go back to what he could find of ancient tunings. You know, he also made all of his own instruments so they could play in the keys that he was coming up with. So, what we would call the you know twelve pitches of the scale, Parch divided into forty three increments. Here is the scale on my chromolodeon, an adapted reed organ. So it sounds very rubbery. It sounds crazy to people. Parch really staged a one-man revolution against European music. The next piece on your on your playlist is also by an American from the Southwest, George Jones. Say It's Not You, which he recorded in 68. What made you love that? Have you heard it? Yes. Well done. Same reason you love it. Darling, there's talk around town About a girl who spreads love I worship George Jones, let me tell you that. I also choreographed this long ago. I did three pieces of music. Country songs. Country songs. One was a CB radio song. So there was a solo for a little remote control truck that drove around to this beautiful, sad, sad song. And then there was a piece sung by T. Texas Tyler, and that was danced by a woman as a male soldier. So it was a letter home from war. And then I did a dance as a woman and that was to George Jones's song, Say It's Not You, meaning there's rumors about you being drunk and sleeping with other men. Darling, say it's not you, which is the, a terrible, heartbreaking idea. Each night till the breaking of dawn I'm praying that you're not Tell me lies, but say it's not true. Darling, say it's not you. I very strongly affirm that George Jones is one of the very greatest American singers ever 
in any category. I think he's just an unbelievable genius of a singer. Uh, a couple of years ago, I interviewed the film uh, composer Carter Burwell, who introduced me to this term in film composing called Mickey Mousing, which is where the music too literally goes with the words, like Mickey Mouse. In the, I'm familiar in the, with Mr. Mouse's work. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, and and you try, if you're a serious composer in film, you try to avoid Mickey Mousing, being too literally on the nose with this move goes with this piece of music. When you're using music with words, is that a thing you avoid, like being too with the words in terms of the moves you're you're doing? Well, first of all, it's not limited to to music with text. I've been accused many times of Mickey Mousing. That term is exactly the same term when people are deriding your choreography because it's obvious. My notion on that, my position on that is the animators who worked consistently directly with the composers and the compilers of the music for those cartoons are genius. An example of Mickey Mousing would be Fred Flintstone bowling. Just keep your eye on the ball, Bonnie boy. And has that high xylophone tink-a-tink-tink with him on his toes. That's great. That's not an accident that somebody put right. those two together. That's brilliant. Right. So the term Mickey Mousing comes from an incredible alliance of visual artists and sound artists. So I think it's a great compliment. Um, the next piece on your playlist is oh, by boy, yeah. an Indian singer, M.S. Subulakshmi. Who is she? Oh, my God. M.S. Subulakshmi is pretty much the greatest singer that South India has ever produced. So much so that she was revered all over India. The first time I heard this music was on a trip to India in maybe 1980-81, and I heard her voice, M.S. Subalakshmi. She had the purest, most astounding voice. And so I heard this music, it was like, I have to come back to India. I've been going every two years for the last 25, 30 years. I heard this music, it's like, oh, that's it. She had a brief movie career when she was a gorgeous young woman, very young, and then she became very, very famous as a devotional singer. And the, the rigors of classical Indian music, it's so incredibly sophisticated. It's very old, for one thing. It's an ancient system, and there are many, many scales and modes and by th- beyond you, uh, number. Oh, a thousand, two thousand years? Yeah, uh, yeah. yes, right. The, the number that we're hearing is sung in the language of Telugu. It's a devotional piece, and it's in five-beat phrases, which is a little bit unusual. She died finally in her 80s. I landed in India for a trip, and she had died the night before or something. And she was so revered that every newspaper there was a picture of her lying in state with everyone doing pranam around her above the fold on the front page of every newspaper. It's like, that doesn't happen here. <laughs> the next piece, Yankee Doodle Blues, by perhaps the most familiar composer we're talking about today, George Gershwin. Hey, 
Yankee Doodle Blues is a very early song of George Gershwin. And in the recording that I love, which is super scratchy, it's done as a duet, and it has a little bit of sort of patter in it, a little bit of double speak. But the song itself is just a fabulous kind of patriotic without being maudlin and repulsive. It's kind of fun. It's a little bit jingoistic, but it's the 20s, so it has this wonderful swing to it, and it's a beautiful number, and I love Gershwin. Moving east and down your list. Yeah. To Ija Hadija. Yes. The song is called Tongeret. Tongeret. This song is a particularly famous, popular song from the late 80s, I think. The singer is Ijahadija, and it's a form of music called Jaipong. It's sung in Sundanese, Western Java. The fabulous thing, I was there like 80, 81, something like this, and we went to a club, a nightclub, after work sort of club, like a hostess bar in, in Japan. In Jakarta or something? Like in, outside of Jakarta. And... It was a Jaipong club. We went with some people from the UN or something or, you know, and they took us there and it was like a dime a dance kind of thing. It wasn't a full on brothel, but there were suggestions of that. So, you know, the men sat on one side, the women sat on the other side together and you would get together in two lines facing each other and do this incredible dancing. The men sort of martial artsy and the women incredibly fabulous, filigreed, beautiful Javanese dancing. And the music was a fabulous melange, you know, so it's kind of rock, pop, Sundanese, traditional, young person's music. It's a female singer, electric bass, drum kit, I don't know, maybe a saxophone sometimes there was, and then some gamelan instruments, some gongs and bells and drums. So it was like... What a night. It was the most thrilling music I ever heard. A lot of them are just like sad, lonely love songs, you know, love gone bad, surprise. Country music. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And so although I've, I've never choreographed this music, it's something I listen to a lot. But the music is always just thrilling. And, and finally, to England, Henry Purcell, 1680s. Yes. An aria called Abelinda from Dionysus, yeah. his opera, which you did choreograph. Yes. I choreographed this unbelievably great opera, this beautiful condensation of Dido from the Aeneid as a danced opera. 
So it's all live music and the singers and dancers are playing the same characters. So when I did it, I danced the role of Dido and the sorceress. This particular recording I chose because it was one of my first Dido's, Lorraine Hunt, who then married and became Lorraine Hunt Lieberson. When we did it together, I was Dido and she was Dido simultaneously. She was a very close friend of mine and a very great artist who died. So I want people to remember her voice. It's a very, very mm. brave and moving performance, like every one that she gave. Dida was a young, gorgeous widow who basically owned Carthage. And all the courtiers are trying to get her to give in and admit her love for Aeneas, who just showed up from nowhere and seduced her, and she gave into it. And so she's saying to her sister, Ah, Belinda, I'm pressed with torment, because she's falling in love with this guy against her better judgment. Also, he's a cat. I just wanted to let everybody know in advance it's a mistake. And there were some Troy Carthage problems. Doesn't turn out well. That's right. right. So she's saying, shall I do it? And they're encouraging her to, you know, stop grieving and to accept the promise of love from somebody and she does and it's a disaster so she says i'm pressed with torment peace and i are strangers grown she's so upset by this i'm sort of crying talking about it memoir, yeah. r- write about this piece, which you did in the 1980s, being, you imagined it to be your swan song. Yes. Well, I just figured I would die of AIDS, because why not? I just assumed I had all of the qualifications to to die. I was also scared out of my wits, so I thought that was going to be my last dance. And it was melodramatic in retrospect. But Operatic, it was, even. But yeah. it was real, yeah. yeah. And so... My first idea was to do it entirely as a solo performance, the whole hour of this music. And then I thought, are you out of your mind? Not only would it be really hard, but it would be maybe comical accidentally if I like have sex with myself and then kill myself. It's like, no, nah, I don't know. So anyway, I turned it into a very formal dance for for a dozen or so people. And um, we still do it to this day. I didn't die. You didn't die. Uh, here we are, 30-odd years later. Yeah. Uh, but you are, are thinking about when that moment comes and are thinking about your plans for how to keep your work alive or yeah. doable. Yeah. Talk about that. What, 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 are your, what are you doing this? Well, I could and why very are you doing easily it? do what most people do when they don't consider the fact that they're not going to live forever, mm-hmm. um, which is you just hope everything's going to be fine and you no longer choreograph and your dancers live off the fumes of your work for as long as they can handle it. And then it's done. And that's worked. But very often there's a very rapid decay in the work. And then some people are just surprised. It's like, oh no, we don't have any new work. So I'm making up dances. I've done one and I've started a second one that are completely choreographed on my dancers, designed, you know, design meaning lights, costume sets if needed. Music is done. So the dances will be complete and then released as needed when I'm no longer choreographing. Either I'm dead or can't do it anymore. And then there'll be maybe a dance every year or so that's a world premiere. 
hooray. So so they're they're going to be kept <laughs> in the vault until until, until the time, time comes. Mm-hmm. I love this idea that you're doing. Yeah, this. me too. Some people think it's horribly morbid. No. I think it's kind of thrilling. Totally, <laughs> totally. And what'll I know? I'm not going to see it. Yeah. Good luck, everybody. It's it's just <laughs> such a great way of being prolific, which is to say prolific beyond. Yeah, I prefer prolific to incontinent. <laughs> there, there, there's a slogan. Um, I, I, I figured this would be fun, Mark Morris, and it was. Thank you oh, so much. Thank you. Mark Morris's new memoir, Out Loud, is out now. And his production of Orfeo and Eurydice, the Gluck opera, is on stage right now at the Metropolitan Opera in New York. It stars the mezzo-soprano Jamie Barton. And by the way, you can find an interview with her in our podcast feed. Coming up next. In this episode, it's like, this is not about defense plans. This is not about the Cardassian homeworld or war or like anything. Like This is about something else. How an episode of Star Trek, The Next Generation, helped Carmen Maria Machado write her memoir about being abused. And I think for me, ostensibly, there was like jealousy. But really, it's not about that. It's like it was about something much baser and much darker. It's about control. That's next on Studio 360. When I was a kid, I watched Star Trek The Next Generation, which is like the second iteration of Star Trek. It's really the only one I've ever watched at length. Like I've seen the whole thing many times over. I remember watching it with my parents and really loving it. For Carmen Maria Machado, Star Trek The Next Generation was her comfort food. The crew of the Starship Enterprise, led of course by Captain Jean-Luc Picard, felt to her like family, literally. I actually used to imagine that I was Picard's daughter running around this ship. It was like a fantasy I had. These characters in particular just like really speak to me. I mean, there's something very comforting about it. When I watch it, I feel like I'm a kid. It feels like some older time and some like more optimistic time. Machado's new book, a memoir called In the Dream House, is about a less optimistic time in her life. It's about domestic abuse. So I was at Yaddo, which is this residency in upstate New York in Saratoga Springs in autumn 2016. And it was a really intense time because I was picking away at this memoir in the dream house, um, which goes through my relationship with an abusive ex-girlfriend. And so I wanted to have a show on in the background, something that was comforting and familiar. Space, the final frontier. You know, I watched The Next Generation pretty frequently, and I remember... um, this episode started playing Chain of Command Part 2. And I was intrigued by it, and then I stopped what I was doing. Um, and I couldn't like look away, and I couldn't do anything else. So in this episode, Picard is captured by the Cardassians, which is this sort of alien race that is at war with the Federation. So you concocted an elaborate ruse to bring me here. Why? In this room, you do not ask questions. I ask them, you answer. If I am not satisfied with your answers, you will die. And Golmadred is a Cardassian interrogator who has taken Picard and is trying to get information out of him regarding the defense plans for this other planet that they're thinking about invading. Even though he knows and we know that Picard has nothing to say to him. You've injected me with drugs. 
Surely you must realize that I've already answered truthfully every question you've put to me. And then Golmadred sort of switches tactics and tells Picard... Perhaps you're aware of the incision in your chest. While you were under the influence of our drugs, you were implanted with a small device. It's a remarkable invention. By entering commands in this pad, I can produce pain in any part of your body. And he sort of demonstrates it. You know, Picard buckles and is just writhing. Throughout this episode, which is this, like, prolonged scene of torture, and it's this, like, battle of the wills between these two men. And I was just, like, sitting in my chair, like, staring at my computer, getting increasingly upset and stressed out and sad. Um, I mean, I was, like, immobilized by it. And I think I kept thinking, like, this feels so on the nose. Like, as I'm working on this memoir, this episode just happens to, like, be in the queue. So I met this person when I was in grad school, um... And, you know, it started off really amazing and, like, passionate and fantastic. There was some weird little, in retrospect, giant red flags, but, like, I didn't realize it at the time, where, like, there was a lot of sort of jealousy and manipulation, and things just got worse and worse and worse and really scary. There were these incidents where she, like, threw things at me and chased me, and I had to, like, lock myself in a room to get away. And I really felt helpless, and I felt very lost, and I felt crazy. Golmadred says, okay, so now, now that you know what I can do, and he turns on some lights over his head, like four little spotlights, and he says, How many lights do you see there? And Picard's like, well, there's four. You see four lights? No. There are five. He is trying to get Picard to tell him that there are five lights, and Picard refuses to do it. There are four lights. There are five lights. How many do you see now? This is not about defense plans. This is not about the Cardassian homeworld or the war or, like, anything. This is about control and exerting control over another person to, like, sate some need in you. My ex-girlfriend, we would play these, like, bizarre, possessive games. And if I talked about anyone or looked at anyone in any way, she would accuse me of wanting to sleep with them. You know, she would call me and leave me voicemails if I didn't pick up right away and be like, you know, who are you sleeping with? Like, what are you doing? Where have you been? Why haven't you picked the phone up? And I came to believe that, like, I was really a problem. There's this sort of illusion of reason. And I think for me, ostensibly, for example, like, there was, like, jealousy. Ostensibly, it was something that I would do or wouldn't do. But really, it's not about that. And I think it took me a long time to figure out that it actually wasn't about any of those things. Like, it was about this, like, need to exert control. At some point, Golmadred tells this story about his childhood. I was six years old and living on the streets of Lacat. There was a band of children, four, five, six years old, constantly hungry, always cold, desperately trying to survive. And Picard sort of calls him out and is like, you hurt people because people hurt you. It must be rewarding to you to, to repay others for all those years of misery. Whenever I... Look at you now. I won't see a powerful Cardassian warrior. I will see a six-year-old boy who is powerless to protect himself. Be quiet! In that moment, it's like Picard understands, and which is like just chilling, you know? And it almost feels unfair. There's a sense of unfairness that comes with the idea of like, you must feel compassion for this person who's causing him great pain. And I think... 
one of the strangest things working about in this book was sort of having to acknowledge that like this person who had like hurt me terribly was also a human being who had like needs and desires, which I think is sort of mirrored in this episode. In spite of all you've done to me, I find you a pitiable man. So then in the sort of this final scene of this encounter between the two of them, Golmadred is like, I've just received word. The Enterprise is burning in space. Everyone you know is dead. No one will ever think to come look for you. And that's a lie. Like, and we know we know it's a lie. Like he's about to be freed. You do, however, have a choice. You can live out your life in misery, held here, subject to my whims. Or you can live in comfort with good food and warm clothing women as you desire them. You could live your life in comfort, but... What must I do? Nothing, really. Tell me how many lights you see. So you realize that it still is just about him trying to leverage this sense of control over Picard. He needs Picard to tell him this before Picard is taken away from him. How many? You know, Patrick Stewart's a wonderful actor, so, like, his face just sort of contorts. And you can see this, like, negotiation happening behind his eyes where he's, like, trying to figure out, like, what to say or what to do. How many lines? This is your last chance. The guards are coming. Don't be a stubborn fool. And then as it's going on, the other Cardassian officers come in and they're like... You told me he would be ready to go. A ship is waiting to take him back to the Enterprise. And McCard then sort of seems to realize, like, oh, wait, I'm free... And then as he's sort of being pulled away, that he screams, and I, I don't even want to do it because it's like, I feel like I can't do it justice, but he screams like, And it's like awful. And I remember like when I watched the episode, like at that residency, this was the sort of the scene that really broke me. Like it's awful to watch. And it's not like triumphant. It's just sad and heartbreaking and horrible. And then so once Picard is back on the Enterprise. I don't know where to begin. He's speaking to Counselor Troy. She's basically like the ship's therapist. I read your report. And he says, yeah, but the thing I didn't write is that before they came and got me, I was about to tell him that there were five lights. I was literally about to say it. That I was going to. I would have told him anything. And he says, but worse than that. I believe that I could see five lights. And so in this final scene, he sort of admits that, like, even though he didn't give Golmadred what he wanted, Golmadred also did actually achieve this sort of psychological manipulation. Like, he did the thing he intended to do. I mean, obviously, I'm talking about this in the context of this, like, memoir that I wrote. And um, it feels like a weird comparison to make because it's a little episode about, like, physical torture, which is, like, I mean, I was not physically tortured. But on the other hand, I think it is this sense that there's something else happening underneath. And one of the hardest things about also writing this book was, like, realizing how little healing, not how little healing I had done because I healed a lot. But I think realizing that there are, like, these traces left. And, like, sometimes I find myself, like, getting kind of knocked around by the fact that, like, there are still, like, instincts that she's sort of trained into me that I still have. And they come up in very strange and unexpected ways. And I think acknowledging that there was, like, that the damage was done. Because I don't want to believe that. I want to believe, like, I got out of this thing. I'm really lucky. 
And so maybe that's what it is about the ending is like he's acknowledging that the damage was done, you know, contrary to this like scream that he does at the end where it's like there are four lights where he's like insisting that he does know and he hasn't been damaged. But then the turn at the end is like he was. I saw myself in the sense that I, it just reminds me like feeling as if she had won. Like it feels like there was a battle of wills. And even though I'm now safe and happy and living my life, that there was this, like, tremendous loss. And that sense of, like, permanent loss. Carmen Maria Machado's memoir, In the Dream House, is out now. And that story was produced by Studio 360's Zoe Saunders. Coming up, a TV show I loved as a little kid. It turned the Cold War into fun. That does it, Natasha. Come on. We're going to get an A-bomb. Do you know what A-bomb means? Certainly. A-bomb is what some people call our program. Rocky and Bullwinkle. And that time we really thought World War III might be about to start. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. Robert Mueller says that Russia did try to intervene in the American elections and that Russia is attempting to do the same in the general election for 2020. That's the journalist Keir Simmons of NBC News. Recently, moderating a panel in Moscow, he asked Vladimir Putin a question. Is Russia, as Robert Mueller alleged, attempting to influence the 2020 elections in the United States? I'll tell you in a secret, yes, we will definitely intervene. It's a secret, so that everybody can laugh, and uh, so we'll go big, but don't tell anyone, please. Like a lot of jokes, that seems like half-joking. Not only did the Russian government interfere in our 2016 election on behalf of Donald Trump, the U.S. intelligence community expects it'll happen again. Are the Russians still trying to interfere in our election system? The Russians are are absolutely intent on trying to interfere uh, with our elections. That's FBI Director Christopher Wray during his Senate testimony this past summer. The last time Americans felt this much specific anxiety about the Kremlin was probably the Cold War at its terrifying height in the early 1960s. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. But happily, and in retrospect, a little bizarrely, there was a TV show that helped Americans get through it. It was a cartoon that premiered exactly 60 years ago. It was very smart and had plots dealing with the arms race and the space race with these two Soviet spies as main characters. It made the big scary Cold War funny and thus a little bit less scary. It was called The Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle. Gentlemen, I'm Rocky the Flying Squirrel. I'm Bullwinkle the Moose. And we're both from Frostbite Falls, Minnesota. Julia Weatherill has the story. If you need someone to do the Bullwinkle voice, I mean really do the Bullwinkle voice, call up Keith Scott. Uh, Oh, yes, of course. Hey, Rocky, watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat. Nothing up my sleeve. Presto! (laughs) He's not just a fan. He took over as the official voiceover guy in the early 90s. And unofficially, he's the closest thing to a Bullwinkle historian. He's the author of The Moose That Roared, a book that tells the saga of the Rocky and Bullwinkle show, 
You could almost say it was like the Simpsons of its time, but the trouble is the Simpsons came at the right time. Rocky and Bullwinkle was 30 years too early. You know, all of the competing cartoons were uh, mice and cats chasing each other and Yogi Bear stealing a pie off a window. Suddenly, these, uh, this little cartoon series of Rocky and Bullwinkle came along and it was making jokes about Congress and uh, communism. Army intelligence. That mean anything to you? Yeah! Sounds like a contradiction in terms! For TV audiences in the early 60s, that was a big leap from the recycled gags of shows like The Flintstones. In episode one, Bullwinkle sets off an international incident when a pie he's making turns out to be the recipe for a super powerful jet fuel. Bullwinkle, you're gonna be a famous scientist. Well, after all, I am a graduate of MIT, the Moose Institute of Toe Dancing. Unfortunately, our boy. Which naturally have been so happy. attracts the attention of super spy Boris Badenov. His idiot moose in squirrel again. Yep, Keith also does Boris. In real life, the doomsday clock may have been edging towards midnight, but on Saturday mornings in Frostbite Falls, Minnesota, it boiled down to Boris and Natasha coming up with their fiendish plots to kill Moose and Squirrel. That does it, Natasha. Come on. We're going to get an A-bomb. Do you know what A-bomb means? Certainly. A-bomb is what some people call our program. I don't think that's so funny. Neither do they, apparently. You have, you know, the Eastern Bloc presented as these completely sinister agents, you know, spies. That's David Bushman. He's curator for television at the Paley Center for Media in New York. What's subversive is that instead of being the dangerous communist agents who are out to infiltrate our country, they're being portrayed as completely incompetent and really not something to be scared of because they're so miserable at what they do. A lot of that had to do with the show's co-creator, cartoon producer Jay Ward. He was legendary in the world of cartoon producers. I really grew up on the lore of Rocky and Bullwinkle because that was the one cartoon we were allowed to watch. <laughs> but I loved it. That's Tiffany, his daughter. My dad was famous for doing very funny, unusual things as surprises. He'd take his writers, he'd, he'd have contests. He had a mustache-growing contest once. Whoever grew the best mustache in six months won a trip to Hawaii. He put in the first ice cream parlor, a refrigerator full of candy bars, soda machines, popcorn machines, snow cone machines. So he put that in in 1959, and then everybody got so heavy eating all that all the time that he then put in the first gym in his studio in 1959 so people could work out. For Jay Ward, working on a show should be as fun as watching it, but he really brought out the party when it came to promoting Rocky and Bullwinkle. And in the fall of 1962, he broke new ground in publicity stunts. He decided to petition for a new state and name it Musylvania. Musylvania? What's that? That's where Bullwinkle went on vacation. Musylvania is the wettest, soggiest, dreariest place on Earth. You forgot useless. Useless, too. The U.S. insists it's part of Canada, and Canada insists it's part of the U.S. So Jay Ward actually manages to make Musylvania a real place. He gets a lease on a tiny island way up in northern Minnesota in a lake along the Canadian border. And then he hits the road on this crazy publicity tour in the last week of October. You don't need a brain, but you must be insane to live in Musylvania. There's a land of... So my dad and his publicity agent, a wonderful man named Howard Brandy, who has also passed on, they got a, like a, a big van. Big sound truck called the Bullwinkle Special, and it had uh, little cherubs and very, very colorful braid and painting all over it. 
and it said statehood for Musylvania. And Dad mounted on it a circus calliope, a very large circus calliope. It's like a big, crazy ice cream truck, handing out pins and stickers and maps of Musylvania and blasting these anthems. They barrel out of California, heading for New York, stopping at the NBC affiliates along the way. And they hold these bizarre press conferences. Musylvania would qualify permanently as a disaster area and thereby be permanently entitled to government funds. No school integration problem. In fact, no schools. One of their stops along the way, of course, was um, the nation's capital in Washington, D.C. Now, this is when things start to feel like an episode of Rocky and Bullwinkle. Remember, this is the end of October 1962. American planes had just spotted nuclear missile bases on Cuba. On October 22nd, the military had gone into DEFCON 3, and President Kennedy had addressed the nation to prepare Americans for the worst. And in the middle of all this, Jay Ward determines to get the president to say yes to Musylvania. They uh, took this uh, truck right up onto the White House driveway with the banners waving and this little calliope blaring these uh, silly songs. They said that the, um, you could hear them across the Potomac. Suddenly, they were turned away by a very grim-faced uh, guard. Howard Brandy, Ward's publicist who was along with him on the tour, talked about it in 1990 in a PBS interview. We got to the White House gate, and uh, the man said, what are you doing? And he said, turn off that music. And Jay said, uh, said well, you know, we're here to see President Kennedy. We want state of Pennsylvania. And uh, the guy said, turn around and get out of here. And Jay said, you know, you could be civil. I mean, I said, Jay, turn around. He said, no, I don't like his attitude. And, uh, of course, the guy then started to unbuckle his revolver. I panicked. I mean, I just I said, Jay, let's get out of here. And Jay didn't like his attitude. He said, well, I will, but, I mean, the man is absolutely rude. And we turned around and left. The guards weren't very friendly to my dad. And he, <laughs> he ended up calling us at home and saying, they don't have a sense of humor in Washington. But they don't give up there. Howard Brandy snaps a couple of pictures of the Bullwinkle mobile parked outside the White House and brings them over to the guy at the local AP office. Said to the man, look, we tried to get into the White House and they wouldn't let us. And I thought Kennedy had a sense of humor and all that kind of stuff. And he said, come, let me show you something. And he took me over and showed me the photographs of the uh, Russian ships with the missiles uh, covered going toward Cuba. And we had arrived at the White House on the day of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So nobody paid any attention to us, even though we were very funny. And uh, that ended the tour. Then we drove back home. Uh, never did get statehood from Mussolvania either. Now Mussolvania is never having statehood. Bullwinkle, we gave him our petition. In the end, fingers were lifted from buttons, and the world returned from the brink of doom. Moose and Squirrel went on, too, averting threats from nefarious agents. To save the economy of their evil homeland, Boris and Natasha steal disaster rations from Musylvania, and that's their undoing. Boris and Natasha then steal all of these goodies and head across the lake, but their raft sinks. They sink into the sunset, and Rocky and Bullwinkle wave goodbye. And uh, that is the end of the whole Rocky and Bullwinkle saga. And into reruns it went, through the 60s and 70s, through Vietnam and disco and the Reagan administration. Jay Ward died in 1989 around the same time we discovered that the Soviets really were more bungling and incompetent than we'd believed. 
Boris, did you get blown up by your own grenade again? And by the time I was a kid, watching my dad's VHS tapes of Rocky and Bullwinkle, the Soviet Union had vanished from the map. What you have is basically a strong ringing endorsement of the American way of life and a strong portrayal of America as this plucky squirrel and this completely innocent, childlike, charmed moose. Plucky and innocent. That doesn't really describe America during the Cold War, let alone America today. But Jay Ward tapped into the things we most want to believe about ourselves as a nation. And maybe that means that we all live in a country that doesn't exist. How are things in Musylvania? Does that fetid swamp still fester there? Does it still give off the pungent smell of muscatel and sweaty grizzly bear? How are things in Musylvania this fine day? Pretty good, huh, Rock? I think we got an album. <laughs> that story was produced by Julia Weatherall. Tiffany Ward is now the executive producer for the Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle reboot on Amazon. And that's it for this week's show. Studio 360 is a production of PRI in association with Slate. Our production team is Jocelyn Gonzalez, Andrew Adam Newman, Sandra Lopez Monsalve, Evan Chung, Lauren Hansen, Sam Kim, Zoe Saunders, Tommy Bazarian, Morgan Flannery. And I am Kurt Anderson. He'd have contests. He had a mustache growing contest once. Thank you very much for listening. PRI Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360. How Reuben Blades and Willie Colon took salsa from the streets of New York to the world. The album became a smash, I mean a Beatles-sized type of success abroad. Studio 360's new series, New York Icons. First up, Siembra. This was like Shakespearean poetry on wax. Next time on Studio 360. Pesas que cuando se agitan, sudan Chanel no.